views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth. We're at the start of 2023, so I thought it might be a good time to chat for a minute about New Year's resolutions, about new beginnings, about what researchers call fresh starts. If you made a New Year's resolution, you are not alone. Surveys show that about 44% of people in the U.S. say that they were likely or very likely to make one. And if you did make one, chances are pretty good it was around healthier living or finding a way to improve your happiness or meeting a career goal, maybe getting your finances in order, maybe even bolstering your relationships. Chances are also pretty good you may be already wavering on whether or not you can stick with this. One thing we know about New Year's resolutions is that they're pretty hard to keep. After a week, about 25% of people have already given it up. After a month, a little over 30% of people have given it up. And six months down the road, only half, fewer than half actually, are still at it, which is why if you're going to tackle a resolution or a fresh start, the key is to try to do it right. So even if you've already made yours, just a few tips for making sure that you can actually stick with it going down the road. First of all, you should know New Year's is actually a really good time to do this. It helps you. My friend Katie Milkman is a Wharton professor, and she's done a lot of work on how to create change in your life. And she explains that when you pick a time that feels fresh to try to create a change, and it can be New Year's, but it can also be a birthday, a first day of a new season, even a Monday, you are going to have a better chance of success because in these new moments, people tend to feel more distant from their failures of the past. The failures are old you and this point of time is new you and that allows you to feel more capable and pushes you ahead with a greater chance of keeping it up. So if you did make a New Year's resolution, you can hold on to that. It's also important how you frame your resolutions. So I'm a big believer in no judgment. I'm not going to tell you what you should change or what you should not change. But there's research that shows that people who make what are called approach goals rather than avoidance goals have a greater chance of success. They're also happier no matter how much success they have. So what's the difference 
Essentially, it is positive framing versus negative framing. We're a money show. So let's say you are trying to cut down on the amount of money that you are spending eating out or on personal care. In my own life, I have gone through bouts of trying to spend less money getting my hair blown out. Like I said, don't judge. Framing it negatively with avoidance, I might say, I am not going to get a blowout every week. Framing it more positively with approach, I might say, I am really going to enjoy my monthly blowout. You get it? Just a slight difference. Number three is to try to get as specific as possible. I'm sure that you have heard how popular dry January has gotten. Um, Maybe you're even doing dry January as we speak. It's where after the holidays, people decide they're just going to lay off alcohol for a month. And it works because it's an example of what's called a SMART goal, S-M-A-R-T. It is specific. It's measurable. It has a particular time frame for achieving success. One other thing that helps is to just tell somebody else what you're doing. Why? Because having other people keeping you accountable is really, really helpful. You don't have to feel like you're doing it alone. This is one reason why I structured my Finance Fix Financial Coaching Program as a small group program. It's why I like having a running buddy. Having people march towards similar goals together helps everybody raise their chances of success. Finally, if you slip up, if you have already slipped up, Don't beat yourself up. Just acknowledge it and try to do a little bit better tomorrow. Or if you want to restart the fresh start clock, you can remember that you can always do it on a Monday. So that's my two cents. But sometimes it's just better to learn from an expert. And in my book, there are very few experts on financial psychology that are better but also more fun to talk to than Sarah Newcomb. Sarah is Director of Financial Psychology at Morningstar. She writes a regular column on Morningstar.com, which you should all read. She's also the author of the book Loaded, Money, Psychology, and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. Hey, Sarah. Hi, it's great to see you, Jean. It is great to see you, too. Happy 2023. Yes, a new start. It feels like we need one this year. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I do think in, in context, though, I feel that way every year. I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to look forward. I like to spend the end of the year looking back and reflecting and then looking forward to, like, where do I want to be this time next year? As you looked back and reflected on 2022, what came up? What what bubbled up to the surface? Mm. Yeah, I mean, from a financial perspective, I think I did pretty well in in terms of like getting to my goals. Um, when I look forward, I want to be clearer with, um, you know, stretching my goals a little bit, getting more specific about, you know, what do, what do I want to see in my growth and net worth for a year? I want to try those kinds of goals this year. Wow, what do I want to see in my growth in net worth? I mean, that's that's a lot simply because some of it's in your 
control. Some of it may not be in your control. We've just come through a year of tremendous market uncertainty. How are you how are you wrapping your hands around that goal? Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes a difference to be in a portfolio that you feel comfortable with. It really does. And that's one thing that in 2022, I know I was in the right portfolio for me because no matter what the market did, I, I felt like it was uh, calm seas for me. Um, and I was focused on the things I can control. And you know what was, what's been hard about the last couple of years from an investment perspective is whether you're 60-40 or 50-50 or 90-10 in stocks and bonds, they all did bad. You yeah, know? and so, <laughs> so uh, part of it is being able to to just say, okay, you know, there are going to be years like that. Didn't isn't this what we signed up for? Well, tr- saying okay <laughs> sounds a lot easier than it actually it's is. So you you wrote an article about training your brain to handle market uncertainty. Just in case we have another year like last one or or down the pike, I know we'll have some uncertainty. How do we do that? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, we have to understand that all of us are uncomfortable with uncertainty. I mean, it's it's deep in our brains. There have been um, psychological studies done with humans um, that have shown, you know, we actually prefer physical pain that we know is going to happen compared to a small chance of physical pain that might happen. So if you know you're going to get an electric shock, you have your body experiences um, lower stress in terms of like your saliva, the cortisol in your blood, all of that is lower if you know you're going to get a, a small shock. But if you think you might possibly get a small shock, everything is heightened. And so uncertainty itself is uncomfortable for us. It's it's just the not knowing that's uncomfortable. We can prepare for things to be hard, and that's easier on us psychologically than this this constant background noise of the unknown. So in that way, we're like the market, right? The market doesn't like uncertainty either. Yes, yes. Well, the market is made up of humans that are making buying and selling decisions. And so en masse, we see patterns and inside of each one of us, we see patterns. And we we want as investors to be able to predict the patterns of the masses. Um, But really the only thing that we can truly control is what's going on inside of us. And so uh, it's it's really more of, um, when it comes to investing and handling uncertainty, what it's about is figuring out the emotional coping mechanisms you need to use, which may or may not involve um, the construction of your portfolio and your diversification strategy, but it's about being able to set yourself up to have composure when things get rough. Because when we're sitting there and we're thinking, oh, I can handle risk, that's different from the physical punch in the gut when you watch your balances drop. So how do you do it? Yeah, so there are, you have to confront the what-ifs in your mind with reality, right? And so if you make up some big story in your mind, you can be scared. But if you face it, then you can handle it. And in the similar sense, um, you are not going to lose everything. And if you really have exposed yourself to the possibility of losing everything, maybe you're actually not investing in a way that's really wise. 
Do you take away the stimulus? Do you do you turn off the television? Do you allow yourself to only look every so often? For me, I have to think of it as like, what is the reality here? The reality is that um, I decide how much market exposure I'm putting every dollar of mine to. And I found a portfolio exposure that makes me feel safe. I am in 50% stocks and 50% bonds. For me, that helps me feel like, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter what the stock market is doing. It doesn't matter what, if they're both down, okay. There is nothing I can do about that. And so to me, it helps me to just say, to stop trying to twiddle with the with the controls, right? I can't control that stuff. That diversification strategy is what works for me emotionally. And the way I know that that's the true portfolio for my risk profile is because when things go crazy, I don't touch it. This is a good time to remind everyone that all investing comes with risk. And what may be right for Sarah might not be right for others. It is personal. So be sure to check in with a professional if you're unsure of what might be right for you. So as you talk about your goal of imp- growing your net worth by a certain amount over 2023, yeah. I imagine that part of that is, is adjusting how much you're putting away, right? I mean, when we, when we talk about what we truly can control, our savings rate is very high on the list. It's very high on the list for me. And I I imagine that's a big component of what you've got going on here. It's a huge component. And so that's the other thing is so so making sure that your portfolio is invested in a way that really makes sense to you in terms of your true risk tolerance, the kind of your 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 attitude toward risk that isn't going to change depending on what the market is doing. Okay, so that's step number one. Step number two is then focus on the things that you actually do have control over. Once you've set your diversification strategy, that was the part of your portfolio that you can control. Now you have to leave that. You can't fiddle with it. You have to leave it. Mm -hmm. So then you can focus on the rest of your balance sheet. And right. that is your your savings, your um, it's your cash, it's your emergency fund, it's your insurance, it's uh, it's your earning, and it's it's your real estate. It's everything else. And there's so much there that we can focus on. And let me focus on the stuff, something else that's big enough, and and that I have control over to take my attention away from the stuff that I don't have control over. I made a good decision there. It's the right decision for me. Moving on, here's what I can focus on. So I began the show talking about the concept of fresh starts and why New Year's is a good time for a fresh start, why research shows Mondays can even be a good time for a fresh start. As we're setting our goals and our listeners are setting goals for this year, can you give us some guidance about how to set those goals in a way that they are achievable so that we don't fall into that trap where we ditch them by February? Yes. So, I mean, I think macro goals are really helpful with finance. You know, like I like I had said, one of my goals is, you know, uh, how I'd, I'd like to see my net worth grow. Um, and so th- some of that has to do with the value of my real estate and the value of my investment portfolio. I don't have much control over those, although I do have control over the mortgage payments I make, which increases my net worth every time I make a payment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Um, 
and then I've got um, control over my my savings and how much I'm putting into my investments. And so, um, and I have control over my spending. So I try to focus on, I have a goal of having, you know, my, my debt stay at 20% or below of my um, monthly uh, income, the, um, and saving 25%, because that's what's realistic, but a challenge for me to save 25% of my gross income, gross income. Now, eventually maybe I'll stretch that, but I've come a long way from saving zero. And so you have to think, where are you now? What is your savings rate now? The, the national savings rates are really bad. And really as bad. we watch inflation go up, I was just looking at some charts of uh, comparing um, the, the consumer price index with the amount of consumer credit and just in dollars. And they're, they're like, they move exactly together. You know, we're financing inflation with debt and that's not going to work forever. So we have to find ways to live the lives we want to live without possibly without spending as much money, definitely without spending more. If you're if you're in a period of your life that you're trying to save and invest for the future, then um, if you're not saving at least 20 percent, the chances that you're going to reach real financial freedom are, are not that large. What are your favorite hacks for increasing your your savings rate for for I guess spending less. I mean, we're coming out of the holiday season, a time when people typically overspend to at least some degree. I've been watching the credit card numbers just like you. The number of people who are revolving on their credit cards has gone up significantly. That's always a worry for me. I like to see people just paying off their cards month after month after month. When you look at the spending part of the equation, how do you bring it into control? So part of it for me is if I don't see it, I won't spend it. So um, I try to uh, look at new money or, um, or unexpected money or unplanned money um, as briefly as possible. So if I get a, when I get a bonus, I, I don't plan for that bonus in my budget. So if it comes in, great, I will take a small portion of it, like 10% or less, spend that on me for fun. The rest goes to savings or investment. Boom, gone, gone, just gone. Um, and I don't even allow myself to think about what I could buy with that money because that is a, that is a road I, I don't, I know I shouldn't go down. So, um, so helping myself spend less has to do with, you know, really liking the feeling of socking it away. Um, and it's taken a lot for me to get to a point where I like the feeling of socking it away as much or, or more than the feeling of going and getting that thing I have my eye on. So you reduce the pain of saving if you're not used to spending that money already. I like tax season coming up. Some people are already starting to think, I know this because I know how my own brain works. Um, some people are already starting to think about what they could buy with their tax return. Mm -hmm. now, if you don't, if, if it's not in your life right now um, and you're not happy because it's not, is, are you not happy because it's not in your life? Or are you not happy for other reasons, right? We need to make sure that we're not just funding our emotional state with stuff. 
how do you know the difference? I mean, this this is a this is a tough one, right? You you go through life, and there are all these shiny objects that more likely than not pop up on your computer screen or on your phone these days, right? Right, and it it can be so hard to tease these things apart. And what I've learned is that you know we have to first of all understand that every behavior, anything we do, what we're deeply doing in an unconscious level is trying to meet one of our basic fundamental human needs. So that need to feel confident, that need to connect with other people, even like with the holidays, the need for that magic in our lives, for for sparkly lights in the middle of darkness, you know? So we're all, we're trying to meet needs that are real human needs. You don't want to stop yourself from doing that. But once you recognize the, the thing that you really want is a certain state of mind or a way of feeling about yourself, about your world, there's, then you can start to, to recognize when this thing happens, it's called the possession self-link. And it's when we own stuff, we actually do incorporate it into our sense of self. I mean, we hmm. do this even at a table at a restaurant. If somebody walked up to your table at a restaurant and, and took the glass sitting in front of you, you would feel affronted because that's your glass. While you're sitting there and you have control over that glass, it's yours and it feels like yours. As soon as we own something, we incorporate it into this sense of self. And so then if, if our sense of self is lacking, we know that we can replenish it with a thing that represents that self that we want to feel like. And that's where fashion and home goods and beautiful things can be a weakness for me because when I'm not feeling particularly shiny about myself, I want to upgrade my home or my wardrobe or, or my, something else about my appearance. And I had to start to recognize when you can look at where are you spending where are you where's your discretionary income going what categories is it is it focusing on that tells you your priorities your spending priorities now just because you don't need it to survive doesn't mean you don't need it right um, but but you can ask yourself are these things i'm buying to meet this emotional need is it working first mm-hmm. of all because sometimes it doesn't even work we spend thousands of dollars and we don't feel shiny you know, and could I, could I get that need met with less dollars? So it's, it's self-reflection. It's, it's taking a look at like, where, where was the last time you kicked yourself for spending? Just think about that. When was the last time you kicked yourself for spending? You know, innately where you feel like you're crossing the boundaries of what's really healthy for you. It all comes down to just being a little more conscious, I think, paying attention. And I've gone through that exercise where I've tracked my spending, not necessarily to see where my money is going, although that's always eye-opening, but to go back through it after and ask myself if I would make those purchases again. And when you see the items that you think, eh, then you know okay, those are the things that I don't value that I can actually knock off my list. Sarah Newcomb, I I could talk to you forever, but I am out of time. So I want to just say thank you. I want to say Happy New Year. Um, Thanks so much for being a part of the show. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Markets are volatile and there's talk of recession. It's time to take action. 
talk to an experienced wealth planner from Edelman Financial Engines. Call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. That's 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. Today, we've been talking about the psychology behind keeping financial resolutions. Now I'd like to get a little more tactical and talk about some key areas that you may want to focus in on. Joining me in the studio is Isabel Barrow, a wealth planner from Edelman Financial Engines. Isabel, always great to have you. Good to see you too. As you think about the new year, how do you approach it? Well, I think, you know, from a financial perspective, um, the first thing that I want to talk about with my clients is just kind of taking a step back and looking at your big picture. You know, are you doing some of the really basic things that you need to do to get yourself into the best situation, right? So the first thing that I want to be sure of that you're looking at is your 401k and your 401k contributions. So presuming you don't have a whole heck of a lot of credit card debt or other kind of more complicating factors, the 401k is really the thing you want to focus on first. So the good news is that um, the numbers have gone up this year. So yeah, that's a good place to start is making sure you're, you know, you're covered in terms of the new numbers. Well, when you say the numbers, you mean the limits, the amounts that you can put into your 401k. Exactly. Not only the amount that the amounts have gone up from 20,500 a year, which is what you were allowed to put in in 2022, to now it's 22,500 per year. And um, if you're over 50, you also get an additional $1,000 catch up. So for a total of $7,500. So that's a pretty big increase yeah. in uh, 2023 and what you're allowed to save and get a tax deduction for, presuming it's a traditional 401k. I've been doing this a long time. I don't think I've seen this big an increase. I mean, this is all about inflation, right? The the fact that the limits went up so much. When, when we look at the changes that people want to make, and I think when you say 401k, you're getting to that concept of, as Sarah Newcomb was talking about, making sure you're actually saving enough a recent survey from The Ascent said 66% of Americans say they will be making financial New Year's resolutions for 2023. Um, surprising? I don't think so. I mean, I, isn't that one of the top things on your to-do list? I mean, I, you know, hey, it's lose five pounds or, you save know, save a little money. bit more money. Yeah, absolutely. Buy a house or, you know, I think financial resolutions are one of the big ones that I hear. Um, and I think, I mean, it's important to be realistic with yourself um, when you sit down and you start thinking about this year and what you're going to be doing, what you can realistically afford. Um, and so I think financial resolutions are, it's a great place to start. When we are thinking about that saving number, right? Because I think when we talk about financial resolutions, whether you're couching it as Sarah did, I want to build my net worth by a certain percentage in 2023, or simply I want to save more money. What other mechanisms do people have working for them that they can use to achieve this goal? Well, there are so many different ways that we can all save, but I think you have to think about um, efficiency first. So I like to say, look, let's sit down and let's prioritize what are the most efficient places for you to save. And like I said, I call the 401k king of all things because as it relates to financial planning. because <laughs> Queen it is, of all things, please. Right, queen, queen of all things, whatever you want to call it, it is the most important piece, right? It's 
it's the fundamental underpinning of your financial planning is making sure that you've got that retirement savings lock, stock, and barrel. So for most people, that's going to be your 401k. So let's look at that first. Again, presuming you don't have complicating factors with debt, right? And I'll talk about that in a minute as well. But so 401k first, let's make sure you're trying to max that out. Um, For some people, that may be a Roth 401k. For some, it's going to be traditional. You need to talk to a planner, potentially. You need to talk to your CPA to figure out which one is better. Um, But yeah, if you can do that 22.5 or with the extra 7,500, $30,000 a year, that is a great place to start. Now, I get asked that question a lot. Roth versus traditional, both in terms of IRAs and 401ks. And I've switched my contributions in my 401k to Roth contributions. Have you? Well, because I can afford it, okay. right? And and my thinking was, and you'll tell me if I'm making a mistake and then I can switch it back, but <laughs> my thinking was... I can pay the taxes right now, so why not pay the taxes right now? Plus, I got a lot of money in traditional retirement vehicles, and I got to say, when I look at how much I'm going to owe in taxes, when I pull that money out, I get a little queasy. Yeah, I think so. This is, again, a case where you really have to look at your individual situation, not just your income, but also your assets. Because for most people, if you're in a a pretty high tax bracket right now, I would argue it makes more sense to get the tax deduction now than later, because presumably when you're retired, your income will be less. And so therefore, you will be in a lower tax bracket. However, for some you know, there are those who, if you have a lot of money in that pre-tax retirement, or if your income in retirement is going to continue to be pretty high, there may not be as great math there for you. So I think you've got to look at it from the perspective of what's my tax bracket now? What do I expect my tax bracket to be later? And maybe, again, as I said, I think for most, it's going to be traditional. But if you are young and you are in a, you have a very long time to save, the Roth makes a lot of sense. If you are in a relative relatively low tax bracket now, and you expect that to be greater in the future, the Roth can make sense. Um, Or in the case of someone who may have a lot of assets in these IRA or traditional 401k vehicles, you are going to have a pretty large required minimum distribution at some point, and that can influence your tax bracket. So the Roth can make more sense in those cases, or maybe split the difference. You know, I spent a long time doing 50% to one and 50% yeah. to the other. I do err on the side of traditional now, um, but that's me. As we look at other places to save, let's say we are looking at these 401k contributions and we're we're doing well and we're thinking, okay, I got it. I can do that. I can make the max contribution, maybe make the catch up contribution. What other pools of money should you be funding automatically, as Sarah said, get that money out of your checking account um, just to boost your savings rate. So I think the next place I would look, again, after 401k, is let's think about IRAs. So do you have the ability to make a contribution to an IRA? Maybe that's a pre-tax IRA. Depending on what your income is, you may be able to take a deduction for adding into an IRA, or your spouse may be able to take a deduction for adding into an IRA if they don't have access to a 401k, for example. There are income limitations here as to what is deductible and what is not. If you're married, it is um, the deduction starts to phase out at around $116,000 of combined income. So if you're under that, it may make sense to go ahead and start adding to a traditional IRA and getting a deduction. A Roth IRA is 
the next option you would have. So if your income is over that $116,000 threshold for a married couple, um, but is under around $218,000, you may be able to make a Roth IRA contribution as well. So, and those in, those limits have gone up again. This, as have the 401k limits, um, IRA contribution limits have gone up as well to $6,500. What's your feeling about making a traditional non-deductible contribution if you can? I don't love it. And I, I, you know, um, I've gone back and forth on this over the years, but I will tell you, I don't love it. And the reason is that it, it really complicates your IRA distributions when you go to take them out. Ah. So a non-deductible IRA contribution means your income is over the limit. You're still allowed to make a contribution, but because you're over the limit for deductibility, you're not taking a tax deduction. So now you've got commingled inside your traditional IRA. You've got pre-tax money that you put in, you've never paid taxes on, and now you have this post-tax money that you've put in that you have that you have paid taxes on. So when you go to take it out, you've got to tell the IRS, oh, well, I already paid tax on this piece. And it's a kind of a complicated process. And you can't just go back in the year when you're taking a distribution and say, I want to take that piece that I already paid taxes on. Nope. You got to spread it out over many, many years. It gets a little messy. You mentioned credit card debt, and I've been dismayed to see credit card debt numbers just going up and and the number of people revolving on their credit cards, not paying off their balances every single month, going up. We're we're past that nice little cushion that we built in the pandemic for many people. As you look at the hierarchy of what to do with the next dollar, I, I get why you put 401k at the top, because if you get those matching dollars on your contributions, that's a 50% return on your money. In most cases, it's guaranteed. You can't beat that. But does paying off high interest rate credit card debt come next? I would say yes. And I would also say that um, depending on the rates on your credit cards, you may even want to consider not maxing out the 401k in favor of paying down credit cards. If you have, um, unless they're, they're sort of credit cards you're planning on paying off in the next month or two months or three months, like that's kind of a, a different story, right? Maybe you have some debt left over from the holidays or for some from some travel and you're going to tackle that really quickly. That's okay. That's, you know, ideally you don't have it, but you know, you're going to be able to get rid of that pretty quickly. But if you have lingering credit card debt at this 15, 20% rates, I would say that that comes second to putting in just enough into your 401k to get your employer match. Okay. So let's do what you have to do into your 401k plan to get your employer match. And then let's really tackle that credit card debt. It's just math. You know, it's just pure math. If you, if you have a 20% credit card, you're, you know, paying interest on and you're earning, let's say five to 10% on your 401k, presumably um, now, you know, past performance is, is no indication of future results, but let's just say hypothetically, well, now paying 20% and you're earning five or 10, you know, the math doesn't work. So let's get the credit cards paid off first and then let's focus on increasing those 401k contributions. Yeah, I think it always helps to just make the point whenever you are paying off a debt, the return on your money is equal to the interest rate. That's right. People just, sometimes that is a concept that that is misunderstood yeah. and it's, it's important. What about 
not to throw a wrinkle in things, but to throw a wrinkle in things. Many employers these days are incentivizing contributions to a health savings account. If there's an incentive, do you bucket that with the matching dollars from the 401k? So you grab that first? I do. Yeah, I would say um, if you have an HSA and you have matching funds on the HSA, let's also focus on putting in what you need to in your employer-sponsored accounts in order to get that match. And then let's focus on, again, let's focus on credit card debt. A second to that. Do you snowball or do you avalanche? Absolutely avalanche. So what we're talking about is the methods of paying off your debts. So let's just take, for example, somebody who has two credit cards. One of them has a $500 balance that has a 5% interest rate. And the other is a $10,000 balance that has a 20% interest rate. Well, the temptation is, well, let me just pay the $500 balance first, right? But in reality, you're better off putting the money towards the $10,000 credit card because it's at a much higher rate. Now, let's keep paying the minimums on the $500 card, but let's focus on putting all your extra payments to the credit card that has the highest interest rate first. Yeah. Have you heard about the blizzard? No, what's the blizzard? So the blizzard is sort of in between the avalanche and the snowball, and it lets you get that one fast psychological win by wiping off that small debt, and then you go avalanche. Oh, okay. All right. So I didn't invent it, but I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> you know it. what I say is, like, they're, mathematically speaking, right, we can, we can show every which way to Sunday that paying off the higher interest rate debt is better than focusing on the smaller debts, but there is, like, this emotional component to paying off the smaller debt that I think is why a lot of people will err on the side of doing that instead of focusing on the highest interest rate debt. But my my advice would be sit down, look at the debts that you have and stack rank them according to which one is the highest interest rate, which one is charging you the most, right, on interest and start tackling that one first. Even if it's the highest balance, doesn't matter. Start tackling that one first and then once that's paid off, move down the line. Now, along the way, you have to make sure you're still paying the minimums on each um, so you don't want to get behind, but focus your extra payments on the highest interest rates first. Another thing that I would imagine ends up on quite a few New Year's resolution lists is just fleshing out that emergency cushion. If you have not done it, if you don't feel like you or you used it, you know, for an emergency or not an emergency sometime in 2022, just digging back in and building it back up. Where are you in terms of how big it now needs to be? Well, and this is one also that we've seen a pretty big kind of, um, the pendulum has swung, right? Just as it relates to debt, we were talking about Americans have been increasing their credit card debt over 2022 and reducing their their cash reserve. So it's, you know, we're, we're spending more, we're, we're spending down our cash reserve and we're putting more on debt. Um, so hopefully that starts, the tide starts to change uh, in 2023 at some point, fingers crossed, knocking on wood. But, you know, I think that in general, for most people, the cash reserve needs to be anywhere between six months and two years. And the reason why it's such a broad range is because how much cash reserve you need is really based on your very unique individual circumstances. You know, do you have a very secure job, a very secure income, and, you know, you are very unlikely to lose your job. Um, Or you have a spouse that has enough income to cover all of your expenses, even if you do have a job that is maybe less secure. Well, your emergency fund can probably be closer to the six-month range. That's assuming you're pretty far away from retirement and you don't have any big you know, expenses that you're expecting to come up in the next year or two. But as you get closer to retirement, or if you are someone who has a less secure income stream, or you're a contractor, or you're a gig worker, 
you really need to beef up that cash reserve up to, I would say, two years. And I would, I, I have come across clients where I have said, you know, for your particular case, we might even need more than that. Yeah. Some people say it comes down to whether your career is a stock or a bond, right? Is it is it that dependable source of income or is it a little more volatile? And if it's a little more volatile, you got to get a little more uh, risk averse in the rest of your life. Yeah, that's a. Gr- I think that's a great way to. I think that's a great way to look at it. But I would also say that for people that are nearing retirement, part of the reason why you want to have that big cash reserve is just to give you a cushion for your income stream going forward. Because what if you know? What if at some point in your retirement, you're going to be living off of your investments, right? You're going to have your maybe you have your social security. And then you're taking a monthly withdrawal off of your investments. And then you hit a 2022. Okay. And the Please. market is down 20%. Can you knock on some wood again? Like I <laughs> right. I don't wanna I don't wanna hit another 2022 for a while, I gotta say. Well, let's hope not. But if you're retiring at 65 and you got 40 years to go, you know, the odds are on not on your side there, right? There's going to be something. There would you know, just history shows us there's gonna be likely a few. 2022 is maybe yeah. not exactly, but they'll, you know, it's going to be tough times um, every now and again. So the cash reserve is there to give you a cushion to fall back on so that if you are looking at your portfolio and you're saying, gosh, I'm down 10 or 20%, maybe you and your advisor together decide that you should, you know, pare back on what you're withdrawing or what you're taking and start living off of your cash reserves for a little bit. So what about those people who they're doing what we're saying, right? And they want to take their their wealth to an, a new level in the next year. Right. If so you've you've accomplished your retirement planning goals, you've paid off your debt, you've finished saving in your cash reserves and you're like now what? You know, I'm I'm doing okay and I want to figure out what are the next steps. Well, invest you got to put the money to work. You leave it in a savings account. It's not doing That's right. Yeah. You. Once yeah. you have enough in your cash reserve, there is a point at which there's too much. So, you know, we what we want to now focus on is say, okay, well, where can we invest that's going to help us just to build wealth? And there's a couple of ways you can do that. In a, uh, a brokerage account, so somewhere where you're investing, and in whether or not it's an individual account, a joint account, a trust account a brokerage account. It's like a regular investment account. And a great way to do that is, um, well, number one, you can lump sum. You can put as much money into that account as you want. There are no limits. But if you are at a point where you're now having, you're doing all the other things and you've got a little extra monthly income, great. Dollar cost average in. Set it up where you're automating that extra $200 a month, that extra $500 a month, but that it's not just going into this investment account, but it's actually getting invested when it gets there. Right. I do this. So I have a regular monthly contribution that I just send to my advisor and we've already agreed on how we put this money to work and they put it to work. Right. That way you don't have to go in every month when the money gets deposited and say, okay, I'm going to put it in fund number one, two, three, and four, and then make those transactions. No, the advisor is just taking the money and spreading it around all the different areas that it needs to be in. So that's a great way to do that. I mean, and one could argue that if you're a long-term investor, it's a gr- it's an even better time to be doing this, to be inv- thinking about investing in, in a, a lower market. Um, so that's, I think, the, the the next place I would think about is, is a regular brokerage or investment account. Sometimes there's confusion over, people will ask me, well, should I invest, should I invest in an IRA or should I invest in the market? And, you know, I think there is a, conf- sometimes confusion over what's 
the account? What's the pot into which you put your money? And what are the investments that you have to make once you've got the money in the pot? So when you're talking about 401ks, IRAs, Roth IRAs, 529s, health savings accounts, they're all pots. And then you got to put the money to work once it's inside. That's exactly right. You know, ultimately... Other than the 401ks and 529s, where the investment accounts are pretty much selected for you and you're just picking out, you know, which investments within that plan offering you're going to have, for the most part, you you know, in your IRA, you can buy whatever the heck you want. In a bro, in an investment account, you can buy whatever you want. So all of them can have sort of the same underlying investments. It's just the title in which it's being held and the tax treatment that is being applied to it. There's an, a, another really interesting one, Jean, that I want to talk about a little bit if we have time. Sure. Is, is something that may be available to those who have a 401k plan um, that allows for after-tax contributions. So not everyone has access to this, but a lot of 401k plans will offer an additional contribution on top of your 22.5 if you're under 50 and the extra 7,500 if you're over 50, well, you may actually be able to put another tens of thousands of dollars away. Now, now it is not deductible, so okay. you're not getting an additional tax deduction, but when you put it into this non-deductible 401k or after-tax 401k, um, the earnings and the growth are tax-deferred until you go to take it out. So the numbers for 2023 are, if you are under 50, your maximum amount is $66,000 a year that you're able to put into this 401k, including your pre-tax and now your after-tax contributions, plus whatever your employer match has been. So that's your total cap. If you're over 50, that cap is 73,500. 73, and both of those numbers, the 66 and the 73,500, that includes matching dollars. That includes what your employer is matching. How do you know if you are eligible for this? Well, if your employer offers it. So you have to be offered it through your employer-sponsored plan. And if they offer it, there are some who may want to do it and may want to think about that. And there are those for whom it may not make sense because the tax treatment is different, okay? If you leave the money in your um, after-tax or your non-deductible 401k, so the after-tax contribution, it will grow, and again, tax defer on any earnings until you go to take it out. When you go to take it out, the earnings portion, so not what you put in, but the earnings, you're going to pay regular ordinary income tax on that. If you had instead put the money into an investment account along the way, right, that was after-tax money. It was just a regular investment account. You didn't get any deduction for it. You're paying most likely ordinary income on some, but capital gains and qualified dividends, which is at a potentially a lower rate than your ordinary income rate. So for some, the after-tax may end up, or the after-tax 401k contribution may end up having a higher tax rate for you since it's taxed at ordinary income when you take it out than if you had been investing regularly. But what a key here is, is that you are also allowed to take that after-tax contribution and convert it into a Roth within your 401k plan, again, if the plan allows it. So now you've taken that money you didn't get a deduction, right? You didn't get a deduction for, you convert it to a Roth right away, and now you're never paying tax on those earnings. So if you're someone who's allowed to do that, you've got to talk to your advisor about the possibility of what, what we call a super Roth 
Sounds interesting. Sounds a little complicated. Sounds like I need my accountant. Absolutely. This is something that you certainly want to talk to your tax professional about before you make a decision on. Yeah. I've heard from members of my own community at Her Money that one of their resolutions is that they're going to finally get some help, that they are going to... um, you know, search for a planner, find a planner, meet with a planner, actually incorporate planning into their lives. How do you know if you're ready for that? Well, I think, I mean, if you're putting it on your resolution, you're probably ready. Uh, You know, I, I think that most people will benefit from some type of financial planning because, you know, even if the the financial planning in your case is going to be relatively simple. Let's say it's somebody just sitting down and saying, you know, you're putting money into Roth and it should you should be putting it into a tradition traditional, right? Or is that a hint? Well, <laughs> right, Jean, I think we need to talk. So um, that you know, that's just kind of one example. Or it's thinking about how do you actually fundamentally save into how do you do it, right? How do you do you budget? Do you instead just come up with here are my goals of things that I want to save and put money towards it every single month? I think it's really different for everyone. So sitting down with a financial planner in many cases can really just kind of help you define your goals and then come up with how to prioritize those goals. So, um, you know, if you're if you're thinking about it, you're probably ready. I, I agree with you. And I think even if you're not sure that this is something that you want to do on an ongoing basis, having a meeting, having an appointment, going through it once will give you the information that you need to know if you're ready for this as a part of your life or if it's something that you'll revisit again in a couple of years. Absolutely. And you know what? I I actually have been told this so many times. I have lost count. But one of the most helpful things for many people in going into financial planning is just the preparatory phase of having to like sit down with your spouse and say, okay, what are our financial goals? Right. Right. So, you know, when, when you sit down with a financial planner at, at Edelman Financial Engines or in most places, I presume, the first thing they're going to say is, well, let's work through this worksheet, right? Tell me what your assets are, your income, your debts, you know, what are your future incomes, your real estate, your life insurance, your estate planning, all of that. So they're going to ask for all of this information. And interestingly, I think most people find that that process really gets them a lot further ahead than they had ever gotten before they had that. Because it's a way, you know, oftentimes, you know, when I sit down with my husband and and we talk through our goals, it's always short term. It's like, a trip I want to take or Mm -hmm. something we want to pay for for our children or, you know, it's it's kind of the very near-term stuff. But it's not that often that we sit down and say, what do I really want my money to do for me in the future? And a meeting with a financial planner can really help you to kind of define what those goals are, those that combined, right? Those joint goals, and then figure out how do we prioritize those? Because they're not always the same. Just, just a, you know, I'm just putting it out there. They're not always the same. We are out of time, Isabel. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. Thanks for having me back. If you have a question or a topic that you'd like to discuss, we would like to talk to you about it. So visit everydaywealth.com to submit your question. And together with a wealth planner from EFE like Isabel, we'll talk you through the potential solutions that would be personal to you. And if you want to catch a show you might have missed, you can always listen to the podcast. Oftentimes the podcast will have extra content we're not able to air on the radio because of time. You can download our podcast at everydaywealth.com or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. And we got to say, 
We love feedback, so leave us a review. Also, take a second and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.